This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the weekly media and current affairs show on TWSCR and the Community Radio Network. I'm Mariam Chihab and on today's show, we'll be looking at the logistics of breaking news. Of course, by now you would have heard of the terror attacks that have rocked Paris. There's been rolling coverage of it since it occurred on Saturday. We'll look at how the media fared covering the story, whether they've provided enough context for audiences and if some victims of terror are more important than others. Joining me in the studio is Ruby Hamad, columnist for Fairfax's Daily Life. Hi, Ruby. Hi. Michael Safi, journalist at The Guardian. Thanks for joining us again, Hi. Michael. And over the phone, we have Samantha Maiden, national political editor for the Sunday Telegraph and Sunday Herald Sun. Hi, Samantha. Good day. How are you going? Good, thanks. To have your say on the issues that we're discussing, get in touch through Twitter. Our handle is at 4th Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. Well, it's safe to say that the terror attacks in Paris on Saturday were most definitely a stop the presses moment. News of the coordinated shootings and blasts quickly made headlines and dominated discussion on social media. Reporters were sent to the scene, photos and videos were shared and information was constantly updated. Undoubtedly though, there was some confusion and misinformation like any breaking news scenario. Michael, what happens in a newsroom when a major event like this breaks? Well, uh, look, I guess the main thing is you sort of drop whatever else you've got on for the day, which actually happens a lot of the time, I think, in a newsroom. Um, and yeah, you sort of, I guess you will, you would rush to your computer and I guess begin to ask questions like, what do people want to know now? What do people want to know in, what will they want to know in two hours? What are they going to want to know at the end of the day? And then you start figuring out who's going to go out and try to find answers. Samantha, how do everybody's roles shift to tackle a breaking news situation? Well, it depends on... I suppose, what your responsibility is. I mean, in my case, I cover politics. So I was um, in the newsroom. Um, I was already at work at about um, 7.30 on that morning and I think that it really sort of started to hit Sky News and became apparent that something was going on sort of around 8 o'clock, 8.30. I think it was about 9.20, 9 o'clock Paris time uh, when the first explosion went off. But... I don't think it would have even necessarily been apparent to people in, in Germany, um, which was where the Prime Minister was, um, until sort of an hour or so after that. There had clearly been an incident. So I suppose my first, you know, just to go through what I did, you know, I called our reporter who was travelling with the Prime Minister and they, they didn't seem to be, you know, at that stage fully aware that, you know, how big it was. Um, but I started it then, uh, you know, ringing um, political contacts. I spoke to the foreign minister, Julie Bishop. I spoke to officials in her office. I spoke to people who are involved in the national security space, the Australian Federal Police. Um, you know, I spoke to people about whether or not there was going to be a national security committee meeting. There wasn't in this case because the prime minister was overseas, but members of the national security committee were in sort of loose contact. That's, you know, Julie Bishop, the Attorney General, and George Brandis. 
So I suppose I went about it that way. My job um, in MySpace wasn't necessarily getting those eyewitness accounts or doing the rolling news of the day. My job was about, um, you know, getting, I suppose, the political news of the day and how that fitted in. Ruby, when a huge event like this happens, is there a risk that newsrooms will miss something else, that something will slip under the radar? For instance, when um, Malcolm Fraser died and the Moss Review into allegations of abuse against asylum seekers was released. Well, I think that's um, always going to happen when all your, it stands to reason, when all your intention is somewhere, uh, you're going to miss something else that's around you. But then I get, you know, it's like, is saying um, Sam was saying it's you. you oh, sorry, Michael was saying you. You give the audience what they want, and when something like this does happen, this is what people want to hear about. So, uh, well, within hours of the Paris attacks, there was plenty of images and videos circulating on social media. Some of it was from the scene of the attack, while some of it was taken from the Charlie Hebdo attacks earlier this year. Samantha, how do journalists go about verifying the time and the source and location of this content that's being shared by users? I think there is you know, some significant dangers in that. And, um, I mean, I, for example, would retweet things that I think are interesting on my Twitter account. Um, I suppose I think is a little bit different to, you know, what you would put online or what you'd put in on the newspaper. I think that there was some... I think there was a photograph that had um, the the lights in it and that there were some people who were, uh, you know... It it was basically an old photograph. Um, But by and large, I think that, um, you know... It's quite an amazing thing, the social media space. I mean, you do get to have information in real time in amazing ways. It's incredibly useful uh, in terms of identifying people, eyewitness accounts. I think if you really think about it, some of the most powerful videos and uh, that have come out of this um, have been social media videos. You know, um, by the time news crews and photographers get there, um, there are often amazing pictures, but they weren't there in that moment. I mean, there's that horrific images of... Um, you know, the young woman uh, hanging out the window of that concert hall. Um, and so, yes, there are pitfalls. Uh, and yes, I think that you have to, uh, you know, be very careful about this material. Um, but I think that the, that the uh, opportunities there are, are outweigh the disadvantages. I think that you have to um, be cautious. Um, and there is always a risk that people will be retweeting or, or sending things. You've got to be careful about what you actually put online and what you put in the paper. Um, but Generally speaking, I mean, I think that the eyewitness counts and the things that have come out on social media and the videos have been extraordinary and, and really, you know, um, in many ways, um, way ahead of, of what you were seeing, for example, if you're watching a Sky News. Within hours of the attack, Sunrise's um, Samantha Armitage was on a plane bound for Paris and there was a lot of criticism on the Sunrise Facebook page about the decision to send her there. Carl Stefanovic is in Paris too for the Today Show. Ruby, does a foreign story need a local face? I think, well, two answers. Firstly, like objectively, no. We shouldn't have to only view the world through, you know, a prism of someone who looks like us. But in terms of what's going to work with audiences um, in Australia, then kind of, yes, as soon as they see something or someone familiar, then it kind of makes it easier to connect, I guess, for our audiences. Why were people people unhappy that she was flying over to Paris? Some of the comments were that she's out of her depth there and some people concerned about her safety as well. So... No, what do you think? Yeah, that? I mean, I think we have to be a bit careful about some of that. I mean, like, you know, what some troll on a Facebook says, I mean, it's, it's, it's akin to someone sort of getting on the Sunrise um, website and saying they don't like 
Sam Armitage's hair. I mean, it's not a <laughs> serious journalistic um, criticism. It's just some sort of you know nasty people on on Facebook. I, I think the interesting thing about having Australians anchor that coverage, if you will, is that. You know, on the one hand, there's this criticism, which I'm sure that we'll get to, that Australians, you know, don't pay enough to what happens overseas. They're too insular. They're, they regard, uh, you know, what happens in the Middle East as something they don't need to worry about. Um, and I think that really, you know, having an anchor that is known and trusted, you know, on television, um, anchor this coverage, it's really just a way of actually communicating that to a local audience. You know, I think that it, it's not surprising uh, it's a normal thing television, um, you know, stations do. It's a big event. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not surprising that they would want to brand that with one of their own personalities um, uh, who can pull the story together for them. I, I don't think it's really that surprising. And I think the idea that she might be out of her depth is ridiculous. She has a very difficult job. I mean, the amount of topics she has to cover and be across on, you know, every single morning is, is incredible. So I think she could handle um, something like what happened in Paris. Mm, I agree. Um, we've learned that an Australian Emma Parkinson was among those wounded in the attacks. Emma's recovering in hospital, hospital and we haven't been able to hear from her directly. But we've heard from her aunt, her high school drama teacher and a cast of others back in Tasmania about the kind of person she is. Samantha, what does this kind of reporting bring to the story of a terrorist attack? I think in very simple terms, it personalises it in a way that um, people think, well, that could have been me or that could have been my daughter or, or that could have been somebody I know. Now, there are some people that would frown at that and look down on their noses, but I don't. I mean, I think people's personal stories are actually really important. And, you know, if you think about this um, instance, uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the number of people in hospital. I think that one of the figures for critical injury, there was a figure of 90 for critical injury. I think there was 200 or more that were in hospital. So the reality is, yes, there are 200 or so more people um, just like her are lying in a Paris hospital bed um, right now. But I think that, you know, it is part of the media's job to tell these stories and to explain how they were going about their daily lives. And, you know, they had no reason to expect that this would occur. And I think that those individual stories do have a certain power to them. And I think that they are, you know, ultimately it's about telling stories and it is a way of telling that story, I think, to an Australian audience. And I don't think it's unreasonable or surprising that we'd be interested in, you know, the fate of someone who, you know, came from our country, um, even though clearly, you know, there are hundreds of people just like her who've been caught up or injured in the attack. And there are indeed, um, you know, a horrific number of people who have, have died in the incident. Ruby, do you agree? Um, yeah, I think people respond more to individuals and to faces than they do to statistics. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I agree. And I mean, if, if there's any indication, I mean, the, the way we covered that was sort of we spent probably half an hour on that story and then got back to covering the kind of much larger story of the tragedy itself and the fact that there had been, you know, 200 people injured and, you know, so, something like, what's the, what's the figure now? Nearly 90, uh, nearly 129 people yeah. killed. So, I mean, look, it was, it was as kind of an, an element of the news day, but I don't think it was one that, you know, we, we spent too much on it. I don't think many other organisations spent too much of their day on it either. While it wasn't until 12 hours or so after the attacks that a claim of responsibility was made by ISIS, the weight of suspicion certainly fell on them. Michael, were the media circumspect enough not to speculate about who was responsible for these attacks too soon? Well, look, looking at the media as a whole, I think I think they sort of we did a pretty good job. Um, I think the attacks uh, on the Charlie Hebdo offices at the beginning of the year, um, 
th- there was a lesson in all that because everyone just assumed it had to be ISIS, but it ended up being, I mean, I mean, one of the people was driven, was apparently from, I mean, represented Al-Qaeda, another person represented ISIS. In fact, it's still very confusing as to kind of how they managed to both commit that and both people from both organizations, even though they're at war with each other. And anyway, I think what that taught us is that this is a very um, confusing space. Nothing is clear and you have to, you have to be cautious. I mean... I think in situations like this, particularly with social media, it actually makes the job of a journalist all the more important because there's suddenly so much information out there. And so what's our job? I think it's to filter that information and and be something where the public can say, okay, I've seen this everywhere, but I'm going to the Guardian website and it's not there it's not there yet, therefore it mustn't be absolutely confirmed. And I think you know that's that's our role in tragedies like this and particularly when it comes to deciding who's responsible for the attack, we need to be absolutely cautious and very vigilant. Do you agree, Ruby? Yeah, totally. Um, I was really impressed that um, even though when it first happened, I was my first thought was obviously was ISIS, um, especially because yep. it was in France, um, which has been targeted uh, before. And but I was I was still pleased that there was you know restraint in holding back until they got more concrete information. I think we've also um, learned too that with these attacks that that. You know, often people, someone like, let's take Manharon Monis from the, the Sydney um, siege. I mean, he had a kind of, he had a flag um, and he claimed to be from ISIS, but we now know that he had absolutely no contact with anybody from that organisation. So even when people do claim to be from ISIS, there still needs to be this element of doubt about, well, you know, was this directed by them? How involved were they really? Mm. ISIS released a video that was played when they took responsibility for the attacks. Um, and many journalists have differing opinions on whether uh, broadcasters should have played it. Ruby, should any ISIS material be broadcast at all? See, that's that's the tough question. On the one hand, obviously, they're seeking this notoriety and this publicity and they want to drive maximum fear. But on the other hand, it's news and... It does serve a public interest, so there is that responsibility to to relay it. Yeah, that's. I'm not in breaking news, so unfortunately, I don't have that responsibility on me. Samantha, what do you think? Should any ISIS material be broadcast? I don't think any ISIS material should be broadcast, but I don't think that the media should be in the game of um, suppressing uh, or censoring um, information. I, I understand the debate about, you know, the media sort of. Uh, using, uh, you know, a loudspeaker um, in relation to this. But ultimately, uh, you know, I, I don't think the media should be in the business of not telling people what is actually going on. I, I want to come back to that Link Cafe siege, though, issue, though. I mean, when you actually talk to people in the national security space, one of the, one of the things that they're so concerned about with Islamic extremists, whatever they want to call themselves, is that, is that the whole idea of them is to basically, uh, you know, have really flat structures you know it's not an army there's not someone in charge but they're trying to inspire people if a couple of 15 year olds uh in some part of australia read something online and and go out and 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 do something or stab someone or are involved in an incident uh you know they would say great great now if you want to sort of have a debate about whether that person is a card-carrying member of isis or or whatever I mean, I think ultimately it's a bit of a strange debate. Um, now, in relation to this incident, you know, when you have mass casualties, um, shootings at multiple sites, uh, you know, over like nearly 100 people uh, killed in one concert hall. I mean, I don't think you actually need uh, to be Einstein to work out that that is an act of terror. It's an act of terrorism, you know, um, 
there were debate during the day among experts of whether it had the hallmarks of al-Qaeda or ISIS or whether it represented a change in, in ISIS's usual practice. Um, but, you know, I really, it does trouble me, this idea that people want to try and suggest um, that the Lint Cafe was not an act of terrorism. Uh, you know, people will say in some circumstances that, you know, that, that person was, was mentally disturbed. You know, I mean, Islamic extremists, uh, many of them are by their very nature uh, emotionally or psychological disturbed. Um, you know, I mean, if you are involved in killing people and taking them hostage and shouting slogans, and even if you are, if you like to want to call it ISIS inspired, really think it's ridiculous to try and suggest that that's not in some way an act of terrorism or to sort of split hairs about what people choose to call themselves. I think where that gets problematic, though, is we, we often see attacks committed in in the name of other political causes that are not regularly called um, terrorism. So, I mean, while I agree, I guess, when it comes to something like the, the Lint Cafe, particularly in its kind of immediate aftermath, you know, whether it's a terror attack or not is really kind of beside the point. I think the kind of bigger discussion of what actually constitutes a terror attack is um, a really interesting one and one that I, I think we should kind of be having with gusto because it's sort of, mm. it, it tells us something about the world we live in and about what we care about. And yeah, You're listening to Fourth Estate with Ruby Hamad from Daily Life, Michael Safi from The Guardian and Samantha Maiden from The Sunday Telegraph. Now, many media organisations have provided rolling coverage to the Paris terror attacks since they started on Saturday. And as in the nature of news, they broadcast the most recent and important facts first. But in a breaking news situation like Paris, where does context come in? Ruby, understanding what ISIS is and how it operates is complicated. Every other outlet, so it seems, has produced their version of what is ISIS. Does an audience need a base level of information in order to follow a news story about a terror attack? In terms of following Paris, um, I think there's a specific reason why why France is targeted. And I think you have to sort of recognise the the history of France and why... uh, a, a group claiming to be the new Islamic Caliphate to get, to get rid of all the, the borders in the Middle East that France helped to create. I think there has to be some some sort of base level. Yeah, I don't think you can really understand Islamic terrorism without understanding at least some of the history between the West and the Middle East. Michael, what do you think the general public's level of understanding is about ISIS? I guess it depends on which parts of the general public you know you're talking about, um, how engaged they are with their reading habits, etc. I think pieces like uh, Graham Wood from The Atlantic had a really significant piece, what was called, I think, What ISIS Once, that was you know, incredibly well shared. And I think that really helped to bolster knowledge among people of, of what this group's about and you know, what they want and where they've come from. Um, as for the sort of general public, my hunch would be that people are, are kind of reasonably well informed. They know that they're bad. They know that they claim to be, obviously, an Islamic state. I mean, I think they obviously know that most Muslims don't support what this group sets out to do. Um, you know, if there was one thing that I kind of would like, I think would would be great to have, to be more widely known, would be the idea that um, a group like ISIS is a far bigger scourge to other Muslims, to people Mm -hmm. in the Middle East, than it is um, to us, even despite the absolutely horrendous stuff that happened on on Friday night. It still remains a genuine existential threat to the Middle East, which, which thankfully it isn't, it isn't for us, despite the fact that they've shown they can do terrible things. Samantha, do you think the public has a good level of understanding about ISIS? I agree with Michael. I think it depends on how interested you are. You know, I mean, the reality is that in the day of of the internet, that if you want to go out there and read really long pieces on it, you can. Um, You know, all of that stuff is there. I I don't think that that the, 
you know, everyday Australians' understanding of the organisation would be um, particularly deep. You know, they might know that it had grown out of the old Al-Qaeda. They might know um, that it was slightly different to that, but not really know how. Um, you know, I mean, there is, for example, quite a significant debate around at the moment that... Um, you know, the purpose of the, the, the argument goes, the purpose of the 9-11 attack ultimately that was revealed through, you know, later material that was released and discovered was that, was to draw, was actually to draw America into a war in the Middle East, that that was the purpose. And so, you know, there's an argument among some groups now that, um, you know, the Western world needs to be careful about how they are to respond to this, because if the purpose is once again to draw the West into a wider conflict, um, you know, how do you balance that, for example, um, with the reality that unless you do something about Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, they continue to grow um, stronger, they continue to provide a base that foreign fighters can go to and return, you know, I mean, there's these are really deep questions that are, that are you know, many people think will take, you know, a very long time or a generation to resolve, you know, you can't leave... Islamic State alone to, to do whatever it wants to do in the region and to get bigger and to get stronger, um, you know, you, you you equally need to be careful that you're not drawing them into exactly what they want. So, you know, I think, I think all of that is just, it's incredibly difficult. Um, and I suspect that, you know, a lot of Australians don't necessarily have that detail. I mean, it also comes into, you know, the refugee debate, you know, like we've had this sort of like low-level outbreak of people sort of saying we don't want the ref the 12,000 Syrians coming now because it could be dangerous when in fact you know we have quite intense checks of security and indeed you know many of these people are you know fleeing Islamic State um, they, they come from Muslim minorities that are persecuted they come from Christian minorities that are persecuted so look I mean I think that the brutal reality is that does you know every reader in Australia have an intense knowledge of the Middle East and Middle Eastern politics? Well, of course I don't. There, there has been a lot of talk about the fact that a Syrian passport was allegedly found near or on the body of a dead suicide bomber, and former Prime Minister Tony Abbott has come out and warned that ISIS terrorists are hiding in the masses of refugees heading to Europe. Ruby, are Western audiences making the link between ISIS violence in the Middle East, the refugee exodus, and the Paris attacks? Oh, I think they are. I think, um, just to backtrack slightly, I think it's important, if there's one thing to note about ISIS, is that their motives are political. Not, you know, They might say they're religious, and perhaps some of it is, but there's definitely political motive as well. And as for like making the link, so that's, that's bound to happen, especially with this Syrian passport, which we don't know yet um, exactly the story behind it. But even if it so happens that one or two... Um, you know, ISIS members come in through with with these refugees that are fleeing from the Middle East. I still don't think that's any reason not to help them because, you know, what's happening in the Middle East is not just the fault of the people there. Um, it is a, a global problem, and it is something that the West has helped to create. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a, the, this is sorry, a really interesting and difficult area of the debate because, I mean, first of all, with the passport. There's obviously a risk that the passport is a fake. Um, you know, getting it's very easy to get Syrian passports, um, particularly in Turkey. There's been plenty of reports of that, and it may well be that a Syrian passport has been used on a refugee route. It may involve may have involved the terrorists. It may have not involved the terrorists. They may not be Syrian. We don't know about that. But one of the things that I do notice, and certainly in the reaction to the comments that Tony Abbott made to the Sunday Telegraph, where he 
called for a greater involvement in Syria and also talked about, you know, the risk of refugees um, being in those mass movements of people. So I think that it's a very hot debate in Australia because people remember back to the Howard government where from time to time there'd be this argument about terrorists on um, asylum seeker boat. Now, my personal view for what it's worth is that I think that, you know, the risk of there being terrorists on asylum seeker boats coming to Australia is incredibly low because... There are really intense checks of security. There's national security checks. ASIO checks them out. And also, let's be honest, with the offshore processing, if someone, you know, if terrorists wanted to come here, they'd be far more likely to radicalise second or third generation Australian at home, got a passport. They don't need to bring people in that way if they're going to be stuck in Nauru for however many years. Um, So this is why I think people have this hot reaction. But in my view, you know, when you have a, a deg- like extremism on the degree that you have in Europe, when you do have those sort of mass movements of people out of Syria, it is absolutely, in my view, completely naive and ridiculous to assume that there is no chance that those mass movements of people could not involve, um, you know, uh, terrorists taking advantage of that to, to, to mingle in. Now, you know, I think that you've got to be realistic. You can't close your mind to that possibility right away. I think in that environment, given what just happened, you know, you can't you can't say that, that that's impossible. And I think that that is the danger in the way a lot of people react to this debate because they're thinking about another debate, they're thinking about the debate in Australia, or they're just thinking that people are, you know, using it to, to mount scaremongering or racist arguments or, or to... to beat up on refugees but I really think in this case if you talk to any national security experts it is something that they worry about and it is another reason why you do have to run you know proper identity checks on people where it's possible. You're listening to Fourth Estate with Ruby Hamad from Daily Life, Michael Safi from The Guardian and Samantha Maiden from The Sunday Telegraph. Just a day before the Paris attacks, two suicide bombers killed at least 43 people and wounded more than 200 200 others in a residential area of Beirut, Lebanon. ISIS also took responsibility for the attack. However, unlike the case with Paris, the world's media did not stop what it was doing to focus on Beirut, and there was no option for Facebook users to check in with their family and friends that they were safe and sound. The discrepancy has not gone unnoticed, with many asking why there has been such a difference in media coverage and world reaction. Ruby, you've said the Beirut attacks basically didn't exist in the Western news cycle and that there was a process of selective grief occurring with victims Mm -hmm. of ISIS. Why do you think that is? Okay, well, first of all, they... They did exist, uh, not so much here, but what uh, a lot of the coverage did say was was an emphasis that it was a, a so-called Hezbollah stronghold. So automatically there was a sense of dehumanisation of the victims because you know Hezbollah is regarded as a terrorist organisation in the West. So to be in a Hezbollah stronghold is to be a, a, at best a quasi-terrorist or a potential terrorist. So already there was a lessening of the lives of the victims. Um, but in terms of why doesn't it receive the coverage or the Facebook, you know, mentions, we live in the West. And in the West, there is, um, you know, whether consciously, unconsciously, a greater intrinsic value placed on the lives of the people in the West and on white people, um, European background. And so there's bound to be a greater shock when these lives are targeted. Now, Part of that stems from, okay, we feel more empathy for people that are like us or places that seem familiar to us. But I think a lot of it also has to do with, 
you know, what the West is. So for all of modernity and you know, the last few hundred years at least, the West has been the most powerful entity in the world. We've called the shots. Um, suddenly, these, these terrorists have discovered a weak spot and it's frightening. Every so often there's, there's an attack somewhere else in the Western world and it's like we've just gotten over one and then another one happens. And so it's like, well, it's frightening. So uh, I think that's also why... Um, but, you know, I wasn't surprised at the lack of, of attention given to Beirut. You know, when I was in my article, when I'm drawing attention, look, there was no check-in, there's no Arab fl- uh, Lebanese flags. It's, I was really using this as an opportunity to really dig under the surface of why uh, do we, why is there more grief when certain people die or when certain places are attacked than others? We are out of time for Fourth Estate, unfortunately. Thanks to my guests, Ruby Hamad, Michael Safi and Samantha Maiden. Don't forget you can listen to the Fourth Estate podcast on 2SER.com and iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. My name's Mariam Chihab, and you can catch us at the same time next week. 